Literature with Nancy Richards. Lovely welcome to the Indeed SFM Literature. Thanks very much for staying with us or joining us and hope you're going to stay with us for the next couple of hours. It's a show, as you know, about words and writing and books and reading. And today it's also about cows and sheep and chickens, Galileo and Africa, amongst other things. So there you go. Something to keep you uh, busy and thinking. Team today, we've got, we've got Kim Winter here in the studio in Cape Town together with uh, Rob Parkin. I'm Nancy Richards and in Johannesburg we have Babalwa and Duma. And we have you as always. And if you'd like to give us a call and join in, you're so welcome. The number is 0892 10 Well, let me tell you what we've got lined up so to sort of whet your appetite in case you would like to phone in. Starting off in our hero feature, starting with those cows, holy cows, in fact, and the ambiguities of being South African by author, columnist, a DA staff member turned Sunday Times reporter and Business Day columnist. He's Gareth Van Onselen, and we'll find out just how ambiguous he is himself. After that, in our book club, our book club member today is Dr. Ranka Primorak. She's from the University of Southampton, and she asks the question, what is African literature good for? Interesting question, interestingly phrased question, and it's a question that she explored just yesterday, I think, at the National Arts Festival in Grahamstown. We'll get her on the line from there to explain her question and the answers. After that, in tech, something equally important but rather simpler, I would imagine, smart kids, or maybe not so simple, actually, going to be talking to Anel Annandale. She's an educational psychologist, and she'll be talking about a program uh, designed to get children's school ready in terms of literacy, another developmental milestone. So if you've got a child or you know somebody who has, stay with us. After the news at two, having dealt with the cows, next it's time for the sheep big time, as we'll be talking to a shepherd turned academic turned returned shepherd, He's James Rebanks, and he's written an extraordinary book called A Shepherd's Life, A Tale of the Lake District. And let me tell you, there's more than a touch of Thomas Hardy here, but it's a very emotional story. So if you're into into anything to do with farming, stay with us for that too. Then in our bookshelf item, back home, our reader today is the author of a book all about flying chickens, bless, Oscar Massignana. And he's going to be telling us a little bit about his own chicken book, but also he's going to be giving us a recommended title. And don't forget, if you've got a title you'd like to recommend, give us a know. We're at books at safm.co.za. Otherwise, you can contact me direct, richardsn at safm.co.za. Tell us what you're reading. Tell us what you're writing. Then our story feature today, well actually we've got a two-part story today, going to be hearing about one woman's journey right across America in search of Galileo, more of that from uh, Annette Jonell, she's a writer amongst other things, and that's followed by one man's journey to get drugs out of the Cape Flats, or that and, and more. He's Dr. Reuben Richards and he's going to be telling us the story of the play De Glas Henidrat, forgive my, my pronunciation there. In our fire story, uh, Roger Webster has another one to tell us in his uh, fireside feature. That's just after the news at three. And in back page, home is where the mic is. Going to be talking to co-editor of an anthology. She's Mandy Poefficient Wundler, and she's going to be telling us all about home being where the mic is. And uh, she's one of the poets whose pieces it is included in the book. And after that, it's uh, the Sunday plays to, to close the show. So that's what we've got, and hopefully you'll stay with us right through till four. Holy cow, well, holy cows, the ambiguities of being South African. It's a collection of essays by Gareth Van Onselen. He uh, himself has a little bit of insight, having both having been a former DA staff member for 12 years, incidentally, in communications and analysis. But more recently, currently, in fact, he's a columnist with Business Day and he's a journalist for the Sunday Times. Well, his columns cover all sorts of things, but the columns that he's put together in this particular book cover such diverse topics as mediocrity, TV game shows, respect, and Helen Zilla and Helen Zilla and Twitter. So this is his second collection of, uh, of essays. And uh, nice to have him on the line, I think. Gareth, hi, are you there? Hi, Nancy. You're Sam. Thanks very much no, for having me on. No, no, not very nice to have you with us. So, Gareth, where are we going to begin with this? Let's let's begin with your career. I don't know if it began with the DA, but certainly you spent 12 years there. What were you doing for the DA? Uh, Yes, my professional life, so to speak, did begin with the DA. I um, moved down to Cape Town from Johannesburg in 2001, and through a series of fortuitous coincidences, I got a job at the DA in its research department, um, 
the DA has quite a big research department, as I think all political parties do, to sort of provide the substance for its communications. Um, and I worked my way up through that uh, and did various other roles for the party over 12 years. But then politics and the media eventually eats away at your soul. And about two years ago, I moved um, into the world of column writing and hard news. And that's what I've been doing since. What's that doing for your soul? Well, it's much more liberating because, <laughs> for one thing, you're not constrained by the party line, so mm. you can um, you have much more freedom to say what you think, and, and that has been very rewarding. Okay. Just whistling back before, prior to the being in Cape Town and working for the DA, where, you know, let's find out where your soul, or what your soul has been made up of. Where have your sort of political opinions, your thought processes, where did that all come from? In other words, where did you grow up? What did you study? What shaped you? Well, I have a, uh, I mean, I, I describe myself as a liberal, um, and so I value quite powerfully individual autonomy. Um, and I think that impulse was created by a few things and people over the course of my life. My parents certainly played quite a big role. My father um, has a very particular view and understanding of nationalism, and that was something that uh, I sort of inculcated as a child, um, my mother too. Um, but I think inside the DA there were particular individuals. Ryan Kutsia, who was the CEO of the party, had profound influence on uh, constructing those kind of impulses and emotions into something coherent and, and giving them a theory and a, an analysis that went behind them. Um, and then South African politics, I think, has contributed. Um, you know, once you have an understanding like that, seeing the way in which society unfolds, either reinforces or undermines what you believe, and, and in my experience it has contributed quite powerfully to my belief that South Africa needs to do more to make stronger individuals who, who are more autonomous and, and self-confident than, than we have at the moment. You know, being a columnist, being a journalist, I suppose, well, being a journalist means kind of, in, in my view, I suppose, is, it kind of means standing back. Being a columnist means giving your opinion. Which do you prefer to do, sort of stand back and report, or do you prefer to give your opinion? Well, I don't think the two are necessarily uh, binary opposites. Mm, I, I mm. think the, the strength of one's opinion relies quite heavily on, on how well you're able to demonstrate it with evidence. And so you can have very strong opinions, but they you know, and not attach any evidence to them. They can just be how you feel. There's a space for that uh, in, in society. But if you want to be convince people of an argument, you need to have reason and evidence on your side. And so my opinions, are, I rely very heavily on a lot of data and research to try and make them as uh, incontestable as possible. And, and so I think the art of good column writing is doing both things, having a definitive opinion, but then being able to back it up with substantive evidence. Evidence. Evidence is obviously something very, I mean, as a, having been a researcher, I suppose, evidence, you like to have your ducks in a row, your facts where they, where they need to be. Yes, look, I, I, um, I mean, it's quite, on one level, it's quite emotionally satisfying to have mm. a theory and then to find credible evidence that backs it up. That's part of the art of writing a good opinion is the satisfaction you, you draw from that kind of thing, and, and hopefully that the reader gets when they read that argument, because it makes sense and it feels good and uh, stuff flows logically. But I do, put, I mean, personally, if what you're asking, yes, I have a great love for organising data and facts and information, and yes, so it's a large part of who I am. A great love verging on obsession, but we'll get to that in just a minute. Can, <laughs> I just want to talk about the, the word ambiguity, and I think words are very important to you. You choose your words very carefully. Um, in one of your pieces, you make reference to the fact of this, this new language that, that out of which, um, you know, flows so much... Uh, ambiguity, I suppose. Just explain what you mean by the ambiguities of being South African. What does that mean? Well, the book is essentially a look at those or some of those um, points in South African society where worlds collide. Um, you, you mentioned, for example, two essays, one on initiation and the other one on the idea of respect. And what I argue in the book is that these kind of things illustrate the these huge unstated sort of tacit forces that exist in South African society that clash at these moments. So if respect, for example, has two profound understandings in South Africa. There's one group of people who says that 
It is something that must be earned through virtuous behavior. And there's another group of people that believes it is something that must be afforded to you because of your position or your status in society, regardless of how you behave. And we don't ever make these implicit assumptions explicit. We, we have endless conversations about respect and what we should respect, but we don't ever have a conversation about whether we actually agree on what it means. And so the book tries to tease out some of these kind of ambiguities, I call them, because each thing that has two different appearances depending on how you look at it. I suppose similarly one could uh, one could analyse the word mediocrity. You've got one, one piece on mediocrity. What are you saying? Well, uh, actually the t- there are two pieces that I think need to be read together. There's an essay on mediocrity, as you say, which tries to understand the word. It's a word that's used quite often to describe many things in South Africa, but it's not a term that is traditionally has a traditional analysis in political science or philosophy. And so what I try to do in the essay is look at what mediocrity actually is. But I counter that with another shorter essay on what excellence is, Um, because these two forces exist in opposition to each other and often come into conflict, as with so many things in the public service or a particular institution or individual. And understanding how each force works and what makes it up explains to some degree the conflict and why some of the things materialize as a fight, because uh, it's actually excellence and mediocrity fighting for dominance. Yes, the coda, the language of excellence, that's the particular chapter there, isn't it? I suppose excellence, it, it all depends sort of from whence it comes. Well, <clears throat> um, look, the, the thing underpinning excellence is an ideal. The pursuit of excellence is an aspiration. It's never necessarily fully realized. It's, it's something that animates people to behave a certain way, in much the way like freedom does or the freedom to express, express yourself. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that in always and every circumstances you can be excellent, but what is important is that there is a spirit of excellence that underpins human behavior in a, in a healthy society's behavior, and, and that's what I'm trying to get at. So not everyone is capable of delivering excellent outcomes all the time, most people are excellent in one field or another, but what you can try and embody in people is a is an attitude towards excellence, that it's something they seek and celebrate and promote wherever it's found, and, and that's really what I'm trying to push at. Is that what you're trying to do with the book? Are you trying to affect change in people's mindsets or, 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 well, or open I'm windows? Sure. What yes, I, I want to have that effect on a reader, certainly. I mean, I, I wouldn't be so arrogant as to think the book is actually going to affect the structure of South African life, but certainly I would hope that someone who reads it thinks about these things and ultimately gets some value out of the way in which I've described something like excellence and and to think about it as something that's worth pursuing. So in that regard, yes, definitely. Um, We're going to take a quick break, Gareth. I want to come back to the issue of of Helen Ziller because you've got two pieces on Helen Ziller. One is uh, Helen Ziller, a living living biography, living autobiography, and um, Helen Ziller versus Twitter. So we'll come back to that just now. Stay with us. SAFM Literature here on SAFM, talking right now to Gareth Van Onselen, who has written a book or put together a book called Holy Cows, The Ambiguities of Being South African, published incidentally by NB Publishers, I think, Tafelberg. Um, Gareth, on the question of Helen Ziller, which you have spent much uh, head time on, uh, much writing time on, and much research time on, um, two, two chapters, Helen, Helen Ziller versus Twitter, Helen Ziller, the living autobiography, what is it with you and Helen Ziller and Twitter? Well, the, those two essays are as much about Twitter as they are about Helen Ziller. Yeah. Um, on the one hand, there's an argument that I present that Twitter is a very powerful political force that is fairly new to South Africa and, and hasn't really been embraced by our politicians to the extent that it has in other countries. Yeah. But it mm. is a fascinating medium because it is so uh, the brevity of tweets is so short and... Uh, the immediacy of the interaction so demanding, it often forces politicians to be more authentic than they are when it comes to speeches or statements or interviews. And so if you look at the timeline of someone like Helen Villa, who fully embraces Twitter and uh, tweets voraciously, over a period of her whole career on Twitter, there's actually a great deal of information, some 300,000 words, of her personal 
worldview on the world. And you can deduce a lot about her character, which I try to do in the, in the piece from those. And so I thought it was quite an original attempt to produce a limited kind of biography. It's her personality as it manifests on Twitter. But from that, you can draw a whole lot of insights. So you, um, you say her Twitter career, which has spanned, what, a few years, about four years, I think. Is that all thereabouts? Yes. She's, she's, her, her account was, has been around for a bit longer, but for the mm. first year or so, it was run by staff members, and so it wasn't her personal views. It was sort of sanctioned political lines. So I've only really looked at from when she personally took it over, which is about 35,000 tweets or so. Yeah. When she literally took it into her own hands. Yes. As she is wont to do. Um, what is it that you, uh, it's her living biography, sorry, I'm getting it wrong here, her living biography, what did you sort of deduce from that? I mean, uh, you know, I suppose it's something that over, over time you become more practiced at, but, you know, she, of all people, would be very conscious of the impact that her tweeting has had. I mean, it's, it's been yes. well covered. What have you deduced from it? Well, uh, a number of things. One, she's very forthright. Uh, when it comes to um, providing information on her personal worldviews, which is something fairly, un- well, I don't want to say fairly unique, that's a horrible use of the word, but unique to her in South African politics. There are very few politicians that, none others that I could think of that do that. So uh, it's a rich source of information. If you look at what she actually says, um, I have come to the conclusion that it's a fairly conservative worldview. She has rather conservative views on immoral issues like uh, drugs and sex and family values. Uh, there's also a strong Christian influence. I think those two things work together, the Christian influence, influencing the conservatism. And over, underpinning it all is a, is a kind of moral absolutism. She has a very uh, firm belief that she is absolutely right on a lot of issues, and it's this tone and style of presenting information often works against her um, and leads to these kind of conflicts that you allude to on, on her in her Twitter mm-hmm. life and with the media and so on and so forth. Yeah, because, uh, you know, it also makes you very vulnerable when things are done quickly. You know, it's, it's what, top of the mind, it's what you feel right now and you put it out there and as we all know, it's got her into some sticky spots. Yes, well, this is, the, this is why I've included in the book about ambiguities because... Mm. It is, Twitter is an ambiguity. I mean, how do you deal with something that only allows you to express yourself in 140 characters but demands that you do it immediately? That is, if you're a politician, you have to, you, they have to deal with Twitter like that. Other people can be more circumspect. Um, it is a kind of an ambiguity because you're sort of forced to reveal things about yourself that otherwise you'd want to be more guarded about. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, you have to be definitive on any issue because people want a definitive answer. So it's a fascinating medium to look at and how it affects people and their personality. Do you think it would be a good, a good thing if more, politi- more politicians followed suit? Um, you know, because it does require us or does imply a sort of authenticity because, you know, if you're going to do it that quickly, you've got to say what's in your head and heart. Yes, look, I think it is healthy from the perspective that it forces people to be more authentic. Um, whether or not you can blame that from a political perspective is actually in effect whether or not you can blame their personality because if someone is being authentic and people take to it like a duck to water, then that speaks well of their personality, presumably. Um, if their personality, however, is quite abrasive and difficult and absolutist, then inevitably that will manifest as a problem. So one can look at the medium and, and look at its strength and need its weaknesses, and that's worth looking at, but ultimately... Any good politician is inherently good, you would hope. <laughs> and so, you know, yes. that will shine through. Yes, yes, values sh- should be sound. So you've put together all her tweets under different headings. I suppose this would be the sort of, you know, in the past one would have used letters or one of, would have used some sort of much more sort of um, ephemeral sort of documentation to research a, a person for their biography. But maybe Twitter is, is the way to go in terms of biographies. Do you, do you, is that what you feel? Uh, I certainly think it depends on the, the degree to which someone embraces it. Um, as I said, you, you can be quite guarded and not actually properly engage with it. But for someone like Henanzilla who does fully embrace it, it, it absolutely is a vital and rich source of information for uh, a biography of that person. It, it cannot be used in and of itself. I would never make the claim that this is a definitive mm biography of Helen. So it, it, it is an analysis of her personality as it manifests on this medium. But if someone were to do a full biography of her life, 
you certainly cannot ignore all the facts and figures and positions and statements and controversies that have that have come from her Twitter account. Yeah. I suppose one can't also ignore the fact that it's your interpretation because, I mean, what else can it be? It's, it's the way you've seen it. Zilla versus Twitter, what are you saying there? Well, this speaks to that point I made about um, the vein of moral absolutism that seems to flow through much of what she says. Twitter, I argue, if there's actually an awful place, that's, and as you say, it's certainly my experience. I mean, any biography is, is one person's analysis of another, so by default it is their view. Um, it is a place where people judge each other and are vicious about their personalities. And some of the things that are tweeted about Helen Zilla are just horrendous, and she puts up with a lot of abuse. But at the same time, she seems to want this universe to affirm her as, uh, you know, a wonderful person, and that's something most politicians want. The problem is that it's very hard to engender that kind of um, affirmation when you are so judgmental yourself because people respond to being judged hostilely. And so it's sort of an inbuilt conflict that was inevitably going to play out in, in, in a sustained set of wars of attrition with the media and members of the public and commentators, because, and that's why I phrased it, Helen Villa versus Twitter, mm. because um, she's essentially trying to convince the Twitter world in absolutist terms that she's right a lot of the time, and she does it in a manner that engenders more conflict than understanding. Um, Gareth Van Anselen versus Helen Zilla is what I'm, was what I'm hearing. But let's, we, we spend a lot of time talking about Helen Zilla, as your book does, because they're two fairly large chunks. The rest of the book covers all sorts of things, with respect and excellence, as we've said, but also Hunger Games, This is a Man's World, and, and television quiz shows. What makes your mind settle on one particular thing, Gareth? How do you decide what's going to emerge from your pen next? Um... That's a good question. I don't, I'm not sure I have a definitive answer for you. I think a lot of the stuff is inspiration. hits you at a certain moment. You uh, Look, one of the benefits of, of reading and collating a lot of data and information is that if, if something does happen in the public domain, you almost always have a context to compare it to. And a lot of great opinion comes from comparison. So if someone says something today and you have evidence of them saying the opposite five days ago, Inevitably, there's a story there because just the comparison is interesting to explore uh, and see what manifested it. So I think that plays a large role. But there are one or two essays in that that were really quite sentimental to me. The one about um, uh, a, a catering function at Lister University, which fell apart into disarray, was something that I experienced firsthand some long time ago, yeah. and it was so spectacular at the time that I took quite detailed notes on getting home of what happened. And I've been waiting sort of 10 years to write this piece, and I eventually found my voice, so to speak. It was, so, it was one of those things that was so amazing that you, you, you're a bit fearful to put it to paper because you won't do it justice. Um, but I think I conquered that and uh, at least managed to put something down. I hope people like it. I'm certainly sure that it will give them much food for thought, as even your introduction does when you talk about three events that happened on the road, um, which in itself is really something. Gareth, fascinating. Thank you very much. We look forward to, um, now that you've moved on from Helen Zilla, and presuming you have moved on, we look forward to much more of your writing. And thanks for your time this morning, this afternoon. Thank you very much. You take care. Thanks a lot. Gareth Van Onselen, his, uh, his book once again is called Holy Cows, The Ambiguities of Being South African. Certainly lots of fuel for thought there, so if you'd like to get your hands on that, it won't leave you wanting for more. Stay with us. Well, it's book club time here on SAFM Literature, and our book club member today takes kind of a broad view of books, literature in general, in as much as the question she has asked is, what is African literature good for? It's a question phrased in a very specific way, a kind of a provocative way. But asking it is Dr. Ranka Primorak. She's uh, with the School of Humanities at Southampton University, but she's here in South Africa right now asking this particular question yesterday, I think, at the National Arts Festival in Grahamstown. And in the program, together with the question, it says that the talk will consider some cultural and institutional implications of the deployment in the present historical moment of the category African literature as a tool of literary classification, a pathway to cultural consecration, a cluster of textural forms, a network of authors, texts and readers, and a mode of reading. 
Well, we have Dr. Ranka Primorak on the line. Hi, Dr. Primorak. Hello. How are you? Nice to have you with us. Thank you. It's lovely of you to have me. I'm great. Thank you. Well, I'd like to start with this question, this very provocative sounding question, but I suppose it depends how you say it, doesn't it? What is African literature good for? What, um, what did you have in mind? <laughs> I was actually asked to, to say something provocative. <clears throat> the organizers of the National Arts Festival said, we want you to make us think. So um, I wrote that title, but there are um, quotation marks very firmly in that title. I didn't mean to ask the questions, what are the very many wonderful books that are currently coming emanating from the continent of Africa? Um, good for very many of them are great. But I wanted to have a conversation about what this category does as a category of classification and evaluation of literature because it's far from simple. It, it has its own um, ambivalences, uh, which is also what your previous speaker mentioned, as I heard. Yes, ambiguities. Yes, it was interesting, yeah. wasn't it? So yeah. just, just the term African literature, that's what you're saying. What is that? Um, it's very many things. It is a category which we use to teach. It's a category that uh, is used to sell books. It's a category to uh, used to classify authors and the texts that they write. And it's a category that is used to award literary prizes. So it does very many, it does a lot of work for us. And the work that it does is sometimes complicated. It causes um, conversations, it causes conflict, and it causes debate. And it has been doing that uh, particularly intensely in the last couple of years. At least that is the way I see it from where I am based in the UK. So I wanted to uh, have a conversation with South African um, audiences about it. I wanted to see what it looks like from here. Yes, from right here from the tip of Africa, because I suppose one talks about African literature, which is, which is enormous. I mean, it's a very big continent with very different issues right across the country. Uh, d does, it, does it worry you a little bit that there's African literature as a term? Um, it doesn't worry me. No. <laughs> uh, if we have to have terms for classification, no. it would be a disaster if we didn't have one. It's a very recent term, and we, it's something to celebrate. It, of course, has a history of being associated with freedom, with liberation, with decolonization. But the homogenization you mention is a worry, not only for me, but for several writers, for several wonderful writers who have recently spoken out against it. Um, one of them is the recent winner of the Kane Prize for African Writing. She is a wonderful emergent writing from Zambia. Her name is Namwali Serpao, and she made a statement um, You know, when, when she was talking about the prize she had been nominated for. She recently made a statement in a London newspaper saying, I'm, I'm delighted to be nominated for this prize. I'm proud to be associated with it, but it's, it's a huge act of homogenization, isn't it? Of, of leveling out, of equaling the very many differences that you can find on all continents, including Africa. Did she elaborate on what, what it was that made her uncomfortable? She did. What happened to her was that she was asked to a question about who her hero of African literature is. Mm. And she answered, she named Bessie Head, but she also wanted to problematize the term of the question. She wanted to probe this word hero. Um, so she thought it was a bit masculinist, that it was a bit aggrandizing. And that hero and Africa together was a pretty huge abstraction, which for her had uh, some unwelcome connotations. Mm. And the newspaper in which her answer was published omitted this part of her answer. And then there was a social media storm, as you can imagine, mm. and that part of her answer was reinstated. Uh, but the conversation then turned to this. Um, you know, can we debate the terms of our own classification? Can authors debate the terms of their own naming? I can't help but feel that this is a healthy thing. Uh, you know, I mean, categories, categorization, as you know, is one of those issues, and people get very unhappy about it. But it means that it's out there for us to have the debate. So, from that point of view, what a good thing that it's there. And I, I can't help wanting, but to equate it with women's writing. You know, there's been that whole uh, unhappiness about why do we have this particular prize for women? You know, why are we separating women from anybody else? But, it, but it, what's your feeling? Yes, I agree with you very much. It's extremely healthy, and it is perhaps not an accident that it's particularly women writers who have been classified as, Afri as African 
authors who have queried the, the terms of this um, classification. Um, apart from the Mali, um, the, the uh, transnational African author Taya Selassie, the, the author of a wonderful novel, Ghana Must Go, has also recently written and spoken about it. And then the Sierra, Sierra Leonean British author Aminata Fauna um, has said something like um, what you have just said yourself. Um, who wants to be classified as some kind of an add-on to the canon? Why is it that it's women writers, African writers, gay writers? Why is it that it's white male writers only who deserve the neutral descriptor writer? So these women are saying we, we, we would like, we wouldn't mind being called just writers as well, yeah. proud as we are of our multiple identities. Yes, as opposed to young, emerging, black, right, or woman, etc., etc. But I suppose librarians and bookshops have got to be able to put things into ca- categories, you know, one way or another. We do have to sort of make these categories. Maybe we don't. But you mentioned earlier that in the last couple of years, African literature particularly has enjoyed um, some light being shone on it. Why do you think that is? I mean, well, why do you think that is? Um, it's because there are very many very good authors out there mm. <laughs> writing very good books um, and f- increasingly finding a way to publish them. Um, there are problems with publishing um, the publishing industry on the African continent, but in several places these these problems are beginning to be overcome. Um, there are many African writers um, in the diaspora who are becoming visible who have multiple identities and are able to move so that they're not stationary. They are both here and there. Um, and they've had um, their work um, well received by critics and audiences. And um, I guess the social media, the rise of the social media, has made um, conversations and debate about books and writers um, easier. So even the books that are not globalized get to be talked about and get to be heard about. Um, so it's a wonderful time. Yeah, yeah. The, um, African literature is, is coming up in the world um, and we are beginning to see that actually it's always been here. For a long time, it's been here. It's been great. Yes, I've just written down, always been. There have always been lots of African writers. I suppose, and maybe this is a universal thing, uh, it's it's easier to self-publish. There's social social media, there's e-books, you can blog. It's just so much easier to get it out there, almost to the point where there's a sort of like a tsunami of writing happening out there. I mean, but that is something that's happening right across the world. Yes, but I agree with you. It's, it's, it's a very good moment to point out that, you know, when people say Africa has arrived, well, it's actually always been here. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it's more visible globally now. Yeah. And it's high time for that to have happened. It's, there's also the huge African diaspora, you know, where there's so many African people or people of African descent all over the world. You know, um, I'm thinking of Chimamanda Adichie, who's just written Americana, or not just, but, you know, so there, there are Africa is sort of spreading its wings. Yes. And Africa is also um, kind of talking more freely to the rest of the world. Um, there is a sense in which these writers that you mentioned don't now only have to talk about Africa. They can talk about any place that they choose to, um, but they are now talking to a world in which Africa is not invisible. And that's great. And it will never again go back to being invisible. Can we go back to your title, What is African Literature Good For? Um, And the answer is, I mean, I can't help feeling it must be good for everybody's understanding, everybody's awareness, everybody's being given a platform. But in your view, what is the answer? Well, I gave several answers in my talk. I said it was not a very good as a description of genre. It's not a very good as a prescriptive category, which tells authors how they must write, what they must write about, and how to be properly African. So I think we need to ditch it as some kind of a demand on books and writers to be authentic. That's, that's got to go. That's problematic. That's what many of us feel uncomfortable with. Um, it is very, very good um, for celebrating good writing that is tied to the African continent, and for celebrating the multiplicity of it and the multiplicity of 
many genres and many authors and many forms and many countries and many, many forms of expression that are tied to Africa and that tie Africa to the world. And it's excellent for, for remembering the history of, of freedom coming to this mm-hmm. continent and, and for remembering the solidarity of the oppressed around the world and for um, reminding ourselves that these are things that should not be forgotten. So I don't want to drop the term. I think yeah. that I want to keep the term as a form of celebration. And what did your audience have to say? I'm sure there are a lot of people who were drawn by the, you know, the, the, the provocative title. What was, what was the response there? Did people come in with their boxing gloves on mentally? There were lovely, there were lovely audience. Mm. Uh, and they were, I think, um, mostly students who had questions. Uh, so we, when we ran out of time, we went um, outside the lecture hall and we had a, quite a long conversation. What sort of questions? Um, they wanted to know more. Um, there were some of them were unsettled by my talk because they wanted to have a firmer definition of what African literature is. So I explained to them that the the kind of making the term fluid doesn't make it unreal, doesn't make it unhelpful. It actually makes it more helpful. Many of them wanted to be exposed to more of the kind of writing I was talking about, which was lovely. Um, many of them want, had specific questions about the authors I've mentioned, which are some of the authors we've mentioned here. Um, and many of them had questions about how this was done, how I, the teaching of this, um, this, this kind of literature was done in the UK, um, where I am mm. from. It, yes, it does sound like a sort of, you know, a basket full of goodies that one wants to open widely and spread it all around. What, was your talk podcast at all? I mean, can people access your information? No, no, but I can talk to the, now that you've asked this question, I I can have a word to the festival organizers Mm. to ask them if they can put it up somewhere online. I wouldn't, I would welcome that. Yes, I'm sure many people would welcome that. In the meantime, um, in the Department of English School of Humanities at Southampton University, can one find out a little bit more about you and your work there? Um, it is um, one of the top universities in the UK, um, and it is a lovely department uh, in which me and my colleagues are teaching courses that are based on our research. Um, so I feel like I'm in a very good place, and I have all the freedom I want to teach the books I want and to, um, to, co- to communicate my research interests to my students. So we are very privileged. We, I can teach African literature only. The questions that I've posed in my talk the other day, I can pose in my classroom. And I'm able to teach both globally circulating African texts and those which are published more locally. Um, They are sometimes harder to source, but we make the effort. And I think it's a myth to say that books have to be written in a certain way for overseas or for the world audiences to like them. That's just simply not the case. I have recently, for example, taught a locally uh, published book from Kenya, Billy Kahora's book, uh, The Real Life of David Munyake. It's a small book about a Kenyan whistleblower, a Kenyan whistleblower, which was published in Nairobi, very much about local concerns. My British students loved it. Mm. But it didn't have any problem at all reaching them and interesting them and intriguing them. Um, so we, we simply need more writers, more books, more variety, more discussion about this. Um, And uh, I think African writers and books will flourish. Well, there's an invitation. If you're thinking of writing, maybe now's the time to do it if you have something to say. Dr. Ranka Primorak, thank you so much. It's been so interesting. Sorry, the quality of our line was not terrific, but hopefully everyone could hear what you had to say. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that, and very best of luck. Bon voyage back home again. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. Dr. Ranka Primorak, she's uh, with the School of Humanities at Southampton University. Dr. Ranka, that's R-A-N-K-A, Primorak, P-R-I-M-O-R-A-C. If you'd like to Google them, didn't she have some interesting things to say? Certainly hope to be unpacking some of what she did have to say. So, moving on from African literature, approaching literature next on a much simpler, more beginner level, I think, is Anel Anandel. She's an educational psychologist. And she's going to talk to us a little bit about getting children school-ready in terms of literacy in the context of a program called My Smart Kid, where we have her on the line. Hi, Anel. Hi, how are you, Nick? Excellent. Thank you very much. 
So you're an educational psychologist. What, what's the focus of your, um, well, I mean, educational psychology is sort of kind of self-explanatory, but just narrow it down for us. I think, you know, especially when it comes to little children, um, and I specialize especially in early childhood development, there is a lot that happens in those early years that parents discount. A lot of educational things that then lead up to them being ready for formal education. And that's what I often, that's really what my focus is mainly in my practice, is to get the little ones school ready where they are ready to start learning and benefiting from formal education. School ready, I suppose it's a sort of a flexible term, isn't it? And usually one comes to sort of see people like you if there's perceived to be a problem. Um, do, do you find that people wait until there's a problem with their child before they think about their school readiness? Unfortunately, they usually do. Um, luckily, with your young children, they are still so flexible and those little minds are so plastic that there's a lot that we can do if we do find a problem to, to try and remediate that. Um, but it is, and I'm so glad that you, you mentioned that, it is so important for parents to just maybe have a look anyway, whether your child has a problem or not, to make sure that they are on the right track, that they're learning what they should be learning, and that they'll be okay by the time they go to school. It's really difficult, though, isn't it? I mean, school readiness in terms of literacy. Some children can read at the drop of a hat, and others battle forever. And, you know, the uh, teachers tell you, you should do this, you shouldn't do that. And it's a real minefield. And there's no line, there's no point at which you say, okay, your child should be reading. Uh, what, what is, you know, how do you know what's right and what's wrong? Interesting, again, that you say that some, people, some kids just pick it up and others battle with it. I think quite often what we miss there, the key to that is that those children who read easily have often acquired all the pre-literacy skills before they go to school. So pre-literacy skills, sorry, when you look at educational products, and this is a big graph that I have, quite often you look at educational products in a store and it looks amazing and it's alphabet cards or it's got all these wonderful letters and you think it's going to help with reading. But before we introduce children to letters, we have to make sure that they've got certain skills already. We need to make sure that their auditory perceptual skills are good, their visual perceptual skills are good. Um, you know, very closely related to being able to read, being able to write, and that's how you get spelling right. If you know how to write the word and, you know, the actual memory of that sort of moving the hand up and down in the correct form. So that's what we want to focus on. We want to make sure, and this is why I'm so excited about the My Smart Kid program, because this is where we start. We start at those first skills from, from little babies where we start with the sensory stimulation up until the perceptual things, the fine motor, the gross motor, to make sure that we put everything in place before they should be reading formally. So if you, if, so smart, my smart kid, that's the, that's the program. And I think there's a sort of a smart box that comes with all the goodies in it that you could possibly need. But again, you know, some children will, will get it very quickly and some won't. But you talk about tiny babies at those very early skills. Whew. <laughs> at what point do you sort of <laughs> stick a book in their hand? What, what goes into their hands or in front of their eyes first? Well, first we want to make sure that we actually stimulate the senses. So there will be a lot of toys, especially in our baby boxes, where there are different sounds, and we want to make sure that they can locate the sound, that they can discriminate between two different kinds of sounds. Um, things For where we make sure we want to attract their vision and then also visual tracking. Certain toys, and what's great about not only the toys, but in the box you get a parent guide that will give you a whole bunch of ideas and plans that you can do with your child with those particular toys. So things like moving the objects that are in your box, you know, at a slow slowly across the child's um, field of vision so that the eyes can track the object. We want to make sure that the eyes are actually moving in the way that they should be moving. And it gets increasingly more complex in each box. We actually try and make, we're very good about making sure that it's age appropriate. Um, you know, it's very rigorous in terms of safety standards to make sure that everything in your box is safe for use with a child at that age group. And we've also, we've gone through a lot of, um, we've been really careful about making sure that we actually stick to the South African Education Department's national curriculum, um, national framework for early childhood development. So it's really been thought out thoroughly by the time it reaches your door. Um, language appropriate too, I suppose, culturally appropriate. You talk about, you know, having their eyes track. 
left to right or, or whatever it may be um, so that they can read. I suppose if they were Chinese, they'd be tracking their eyes <laughs> up, up and down. But you, know, you, you talk about those sounds. I mean, what sort of sounds? Are, are we talking about click sounds? Are we talking about AEIU sounds? What, what sort of sounds... So with the little babies, we start with as many different sounds as we can. So it'll be scrunchy noises, bells, um, you know, all the bells and whistles, really. But again, that most of these, and, you know, we've made sure that we choose toys where these sound devices are actually inside of the product. Very, very rarely are they outside, because obviously with little babies like that, there's always a choking hazard. Um, and then we move on when we get to our preschoolers. Um, there will be actual toys and games that you can play where we start experimenting with the beginning sound of a word, the end sound of a word. Um, discrimination, can you hear the difference between this word and that word? And form discrimination, can you see, you know, spot the difference? Can you find what's missing in this picture? Or can you close this picture for me? It's only half a picture. Can you draw the rest? So, and then when we get to our oldest age group, we only do up until the age of six. So the five to six year old group where most children will be in grade R already, we actually start putting in formal reading games to play at home just to make sure that we actually kickstart that process. Is it multilingual? I mean, are there, is there any particular language isolated or identified? It it's available in both Afrikaans and English. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, it's one of the only product of its kind that's actually available in Afrikaans. So we've tried to, to make it as useful as possible. None of, none of the other languages? Unfortunately not. It's really something that we're hoping to do, but at this stage it, it becomes quite difficult with toy manufacturers. So we're working with them, trying to get them on board, but that, we'll see whether that comes off. You know, with, with sort of um, simulating toys and all those sort of things, I, you know, I just sort of throw this in because it's very much sometimes to do with the person with the person who's doing the teaching, you know, already that input, that one-to-one that the, the, you know, whether the parent or the carer or whoever it is who's working with this, you know, already having that one-to-one is going to help the child. Uh, you know, do you know what I mean? It, already their advantage because they've got somebody working with them. Absolutely. It's that one-on-one interaction. And this is one of the things that we'll often say as well to parents. If you do nothing else, if you're unsure of where to start or what to do, just interact with your child. Start with the songs and the nursery rhymes and pat a cake and build it up from there. You know, look page through a magazine together, point out pictures. That interaction is really the glue that makes it all come together. So, my, going back to the the kit, the my uh, the smart box kit, is it is it a one off, or do you have to get the you know the age appropriate kit as they move on? So it's actually very well planned. The minute that you uh, sign up for the program, we'll establish how old your child is exactly years and months, and we will send you a smart box every two, every second month with the age appropriate toys, and it's worked out according to specific themes as it fits in with the curriculum. Um, then we actually keep very close track of them. So we know when your little one will have a birthday, and automatically we will then change them onto the box for the next year. If he turns two, he'll start getting, you know, two-year-old toys. The same as, you know, going through the program all the way until they graduate at the age of six. Just going back to it being in line with the curriculum, I mean, you know, some some teachers are very sort of thing about parents not trying to teach their children uh, things before they come on because it may not fit in with the, what everybody else in the class is doing. Do you, do you know what I'm saying? Has it been sort of given a, um, a thumbs up by the department? It has because I think what teachers are often worried about is that the you know parents might confuse children. And we, we've actually made sure that we use the same approach as the teachers will. So exactly what your teacher will do, we make sure that we do. We first make sure that they're used to sounds and that they, you know, the auditory and the perceptual skills, everything is there, which really is what your teacher will do. And then from there on, the teacher can just take up the, the reading practice and the reading lessons, and it should all fit in place from there. Just going back, Janelle, to where we began, which is, you know, very often parents only sort of spot that, do something about it when there's a problem. I mean, the, this uh, kit like this, well, obviously it's going to give your child a kickstart or a heads up or, you know, a, an added advantage. But will it also spot if there's a problem? I mean, would, would you be able to sort of think, hmm, this isn't working, my child's not doing this, that or the other? I'm not suggesting that parents sort of turn analyst, but is it going to identify if there's a problem? 
we do try and give you in the parent guide milestones of what your child should be able to do at each age. So there's a general guide. We are a little careful with that because I think some parents stick to it a little too strictly and might become distressed when actually there is quite a scope within development. So we'll just give you a general guideline of what your, where your child should be. And we have an absolutely amazing staff component where if you are concerned about something, you can actually call in and say, look, this is what my child's doing. I'm not sure. And they are wonderful about actually referring that to the specialist panel and, you know, getting feedback from us as specialists. So absolutely, I think the, the value that you get over and beyond the toys is fabulous. Just moving aside from the whole um, kit story, what should a child be doing? I mean, just give us some milestones as an educational psychologist. At what age would you expect a child to be able to start to read? It's a bit of a mean question, that. (laughs) Generally, if a child has had adequate exposure and adequate lessons and is not starting to be able to identify beginning or end sounds of a word at the age of about seven, seven and a half. That is a concern. Um, that's definitely something to look at. At this, the very young age, at the age of about four, a child should be able to make up rhyming words with you. They should be able to play games like I Spy, where you can say, what, what can you see that begins with a B and is brown in this room? Those kind of things a child should be able to to identify, to remember nursery rhymes, to be able to tell a short story within a specific sequence. And just lastly, on the issue of, you know, multilingual, bilingual, all the different languages that we have in this country, um, in your view, is it a good thing for children to be learning a number of different languages from the very early years? We do know, I mean, recent research in that brain plasticity has actually just shown that Indeed, that there are actually more connections within the brain. It's much richer in terms of a neural network when there are more languages. Um, but be, be quite aware of the fact that if you have a very little one and there are different languages spoken in the home, they, their speech might be delayed. Um, it's not something to be too concerned about, but, you know, it, it's almost like it takes them a little while to get used to all the different languages, and then once they get going, we generally see that they are quite proficient terms of language. So uh, so a good thing to start them with a, a couple of languages or different languages when they're very young, or would it be better to wait until they're a little older? I think it's good to, to start really from when they are quite little. Um, I know that we do have some single parent families. It's not always um, the case where there is more than one caretaker. But if parents have that, it is quite important for one caretaker to only speak one language to the child and the other then to speak another language, so as not to confuse the two languages. But I feel, especially in this country, a big problem that we have is that a lot of our kids don't start formal schooling in their home language. And if they're not used to the language they're going to be learning in, that creates all sorts of of problems. So if a child is going to be is speaking Zulu, for, for instance, and is going to be learning in English, it's very important to expose them to English on a regular basis from very early on in the home. Well, that's once again it's a, a huge topic that we will uh, try and address at a later stage. And now, thank you very much. I'm going to give out the details once again. Thanks for your time. Thank you, Nancy. Anel Annandale, and she's an educational psychologist. Well, if you'd like to know a little bit more about the My Smart Kid Pact, uh, check the site. It's mysmartkid.com, mysmartkid.com. It's 2 o'clock. It's time for the news here on SAFM with Anne Moussa.